Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. So Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection is, without question, the most widely told story in human history. Just show a cross to the majority of humanity, and the story immediately comes to mind. Now, the symbol of a cross is kind of an amazing thing because it transcends location, language, and lifestyle, right? It's familiar. And honestly, I think most of us have become desensitized to it, right? We wear crosses as jewelry. We have them tattooed on our bodies. We display them in our homes. And none of that is bad or wrong or anything. But we have to remember that the cross is so much more than a symbol. It's more than a holiday. It's more than a story. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed the entire course of human history. You see, it's simultaneously heinous and beautiful. The cross paints a vivid picture of the ugliness of evil and the beauty of God's relentless love for his children. Now, the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, kind of the big story, is centered on the cross, Right? It's not only the most famous story ever told, it's the central story of this teaching series we kicked off last week called Three Trees. Now, if you missed last week, this series is basically designed to help us live and share the story of Scripture through the lens of three major events, three trees. The first one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we covered last week in the Garden of Eden. The second is the tree on Calvary's hill. That's the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. That's what we'll talk about today. And then the third is the tree of life. This is the centerpiece of God's redeemed and restored world called the new heaven and new earth. That's what we'll close out with next Sunday. But last Sunday, we talked about the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God placed in the Garden of Eden. And here's kind of how that story is summarized. God created a world of abundant goodness, both in all things and between all things. And then God gives image-bearing humanity the choice of either trusting him and going his way or not trusting him and going their own way. And so humanity chooses not to trust God, to go their own way, and the abundant goodness that once permeated God's very good world is broken. But God doesn't abandon humanity. God doesn't turn his back on us and say, you made your bed, now lie in it. In fact, the very moment that humanity's choices broke God's very good world is the same moment that God began rebuilding it. Now, he does this in a number of ways that we outlined last week, but the most important one is a promise that he makes in Genesis 3. Now, we don't really think of Genesis 3 a lot as a promise. We think of it as a curse, right? That's the story of the fall. They eat the fruit. God's looking for them. He can't find them, and then he does find them, and then he lays out what is commonly called the curse. But actually, inside of that is a promise. Here's what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
In these verses, God is promising a Savior who will one day come, and while he is struck by evil, he will actually crush the forces of evil. God promises Jesus, and he promises the event of the second of our three trees, the cross on Calvary's hill. Now, I think it's fascinating that even though the first promise concerning the cross is about God destroying the evil that is hurting humanity, we have often turned the cross into a story about how God is so angry at humanity that he has to pour out his wrath. Y'all ever heard that before? I mean, not if you've heard that. But see, the cross isn't about God hating humanity because of our sin. It's about God hating sin because it hurts humanity. Those are fundamentally different. It's not about defeating evil humans. It's about defeating the evil that hurts humans. And again, this distinction is vitally important. Probably the most famous sermon in American history is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's written by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Raise raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jonathan Edwards in that sermon. Jonathan Edwards is a man who many consider to be America's most influential theologian. Now, I have some serious issues with Edwards, one of the main ones being that he was an ardent defender of chattel slavery and an enslaver himself. But I also take issue with the way he taught so many people about the character of God. And that part of his legacy lives on as he continues to be a huge influence in dozens of seminaries and for many of the most prominent modern theologians and pastors in the West. Now let me show you what I mean when I say I take issue with the way he portrays God's character. Here, in Edward's own words, an excerpt from his famous sermon is how he describes God's disposition toward humanity. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as I said a second ago. Here's what Edward says. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Yikes. Now, even though the language has been toned down over the last few hundred years, this idea that God is perpetually angry and disgusted with humanity is actually still a very popular one in many churches and seminaries. If you don't believe me, listen to this quote. I'm not going to name who it's from, but it's from one of the most prominent pastors and theologians alive today, who has repeatedly called Edwards a huge influence in his life. There was submitted a question to him by someone who asked, I know God loves me, but does he really like me? And here is part of how this pastor theologian answered the question. When human beings fell into sin... God's human creation was marred, defaced, made ugly, and displeasing. We are so defaced and so debased that God finds us thoroughly unpleasing when it comes to personal relationship. In this version of the story, God's anger and disgust at humanity was so great, he was so upset that he had to pour out his wrath for us and our wicked ways upon Jesus as he died on the cross. This interpretation casts God as an angry father, 
wanting to punish his children. But then Jesus, playing the role of protective mother, stands in front of the children, blocking them from the angry father and taking the punishment in the child's place. To be blunt, I think it's an abusive and false picture of both who God is and what happened on the cross. Quick side note, this interpretation also has some real theological problems when it comes to the Trinity because it claims that one God existing in three persons actually does not exist that way because God the Father killed God the Son. But that's a sermon for another day. We'll come back to that some other time. So I could go on and on about this, but, but suffice it to say, I don't think that version remotely resembles the story of the cross or the story of Scripture more broadly, especially when we go back and look at it in light of our text from last Sunday, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Because Scripture says that in the beginning, God creates the world and everything in it and calls it very good. It's filled with beauty and majesty, right, and perfect peace between all living things, including God's image-bearing humanity. But not everything in this world is very good right? It's not perfect. Because in Genesis 3, we're introduced to the serpent who is depicted as evil incarnate, the physical embodiment of the spiritual reality of evil in our world. And this serpent tells humanity to break God's rule and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this temptation is about a lot more than fruit. You see, evil embodied is offering humanity the option to spurn God's rule and to be in charge of everything themselves. In short, Evil offers humanity power, the power to be in charge, the power to decide things for themselves. And it's vital for us to understand that this is very real power being offered here because evil is powerful. It's not as powerful as God, but it is powerful. And the temptation is too much for humanity, right? They give in to the influence of evil and inadvertently hand evil embodied its first foothold in the world. And when that happens, the abundant goodness of the relationship between God and humanity is broken. Humanity demanded to be their own rulers, and God gives them their wish. We get to be in charge. We get to rule. But here's something really important. Because of the way that we acquired this power, we've actually invited something else inadvertently to rule alongside of us. Scripture calls it, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. John calls it the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians, Paul calls it the god of this age. It is evil embodied, given a foothold by humanity. And scripture says that this evil embodied has come to steal and kill and destroy. That it has been a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. That it prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking something to devour. We see this evil embodied pop up all over the story of Scripture. It's the same one that was crouching at Cain's door, Scripture says, pushing him to murder his brother Abel. The same one that whispered it in Pharaoh's ear to murder all the Israelite children in Egypt so that he could maintain his power. The same one that Jesus battled against over and over throughout his life and ministry. And it's the same one that humanity has been giving into ever since. And when we give in to the influence of evil, by hurting ourselves or someone else, the Bible calls it sin. And sin has consequences. Broken situations and broken relationships. 
Now, throughout history, humanity has demonstrated our inability to resist the influence of evil and to fix the brokenness caused by sin. And God sees this. And God is compelled by his great love to help us. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where the promise from Genesis 3 begins being fulfilled. He is the offspring of the woman God predicted would crush evil's head under his heel. Because here's the really important part. God doesn't just want to forgive sin. He wants, to for, he wants to fix the brokenness that's caused by it, and he wants to do away with it forever. And in order to do that, he has to do away with the power behind sin, evil embodied. That helps us understand the why behind both Jesus' life and death. Think about it, right? The life of Jesus we see recorded in the four Gospels account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's Jesus walking around and confronting the evil that is in this world. Fixing the brokenness that is caused by evil and sin. Healing the sick. Giving sight to the blind. Feeding the hungry. Setting slaves free. Pursuing justice for the oppressed. Making the marginalized feel seen and heard and loved. And forgiving sins wherever he went. And as he does all this, Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of this world, the one that is under the influence of evil, is no more. There is a new kingdom Jesus declares, and a new king, Jesus Christ. And if you've read these stories of Jesus' life, you may remember that evil is not going away quietly, right? Demons are constantly trying to get in Jesus' way. He's casting them out. He's confronting them. He's calling them out. Satan meets Jesus in the desert and tries to derail him, to tempt him. But Jesus stands his ground. It's almost as if Jesus is inviting evil embodied to come and do its worst to him. And evil accepts the invitation. And the battle between good and evil begins to culminate on the night before Jesus dies on the cross. If you remember the story, he's betrayed by Judas, arrested by the religious leaders, and then here is what he says to the chief priests. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come to arrest him, Am I leading a rebellion? You have come with swords and clubs. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment. Listen, the time when the power of darkness reigns. Jesus is allowing the darkness to reign. He is inviting evil to do its worst to him. One of my very favorite theologians is a guy named N.T. Wright, and I think he does a, the very best job of explaining all of this in his fantastic book called How God Became King. Here's what he says. Stick with me. It's a long quote. In the four Gospels, the story of Jesus is set in counterpoint with the story of evil, of the snake in the garden, the tottering tower of Babel, the power of Pharaoh killing the babies. Think of Herod in the Gospels as well of rebellious Israel, wicked priests and kings, false prophets, idolatries to the left, right, and center. Jesus goes on his way announcing that this is how God is becoming king and apparently drawing onto himself as though by a magnet all the evil in the world, from the shrieking demons in the synagogue to the plotting priests in the Sanhedrin and ultimately to the pathetic representative of the ruler of the world. Judas and Pilate merely bring into sharp focus what is going on all along. 
and evil, sin with a capital S, is gathered together in one place and does its worst. The worst thing imaginable, killing the one true man, the one genuine Israelite, the word God made flesh. The Gospels tell the story of how the power of evil in the world reached its climax. It's like a vortex of evil coming to one point in order that then it'll do its worst and so be exhausted. Unless we read the Gospels like this, we are falsifying them. And we, as we do when we chop them into tiny snippets and turn them into moral lessons or even, heaven help us, into abstract theological lessons. That is not what they are, N.T. Wright says. He says they are the living story of how the Lord of life drew the powers of evil onto himself and, by dying under their weight, disarmed and disabled them so that from now on they are a defeated rabble. See, on the cross, Jesus not only forgives our sins and begins reversing the brokenness caused by them, he goes to war with the evil behind sin. Jesus allows evil to do its very worst, to use its most powerful weapon against him, death allows evil to kill him, but then he overcomes death with life by rising from the grave and declares once and for all that evil is no match for the love of God in Christ. They came together and did their worst to Jesus, and Jesus beat them. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and evil and all their effects. Through coming down as Jesus... God is doing for humanity what we could never do for ourselves. You see, we'd always lost the battle against the influence of evil and its effects. God knew that. And he knew that no matter how hard we tried, on our own, we would continue to lose that fight. So instead, he fights for us when we couldn't fight for ourselves. He wins when we kept losing. And by doing so, Jesus makes a way for restored relationship with humanity and set us free from having to give in to the influence of evil ever again. And all of that is why making the cross only about forgiveness of sin is so anemic. Through his death and resurrection, yes, Jesus saved us from the consequences of sin, but that's only a part of it. The cross is also about Jesus saving humanity from evil and its effects. Listen, a Christianity which teaches that all the cross did was allow an angry God to forgive humanity is completely unrecognizable from the story told in Scripture. Not only that, it's confusing. It's confusing, right? How many of you have ever wondered, like, why Jesus had to die in order to forgive sins? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why, why, did, why did God have to kill something in order to be enabled to forgive? It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Especially because Jesus forgave sins all the time during his ministry on earth. He walked around to people constantly, forgiving sins, forgiving sins, forgiving sins. Nothing had to die in order for him to forgive and for the forgiveness to be effective. And why would God the Father need to exhaust his wrath to the point of murder in order to calm down enough to forgive us? 
No matter what Jonathan Edwards says, God is not some angry deity waiting on the edge of his seat to smite humanity, only held back by Jesus who pleads with him not to hurt us. I I think we've taken a story about God crushing evil and made it into a story about God crushing his son. We've taken a story about God destroying sin and made it a story about God getting this close to destroying all of us. But the truth is, God doesn't hate humanity because we sin. He hates sin and evil because they hurt humanity. And Jesus didn't come to shield us from God's wrath. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to save us from evil and sin and death, the true objects of God's wrath. To put it bluntly... I don't think Jonathan Edwards' depiction of God and the cross and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, could be farther from the truth of Scripture. There's a pastor and theologian named Brian Zond who wrote a book a few years ago, kind of pushing back on Edwards and his sermon, and he called the book Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. A little on the nose, but I liked it. I highly recommend the whole book, as well as Brian's other work, but I want to read you my favorite part this morning. Brian says, the crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. Jesus did not shed his blood to buy God's forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood to embody God's forgiveness. God did not kill Jesus, but Jesus' death was a sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed his life to show us the love of the Father. Jesus sacrificed his life to shame the ways and means of death. Jesus sacrificed his life to remain true to everything he taught in the Sermon on the Mount about love for our enemies. Jesus sacrificed his life to confirm a new covenant of love and mercy. Jesus sacrificed his life to death in order to be swallowed by death and to destroy death from the inside. That, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. I was talking with a couple of friends before church this morning. About 9.30 every week, we do a little huddle with everybody who's serving in different parts of the church, and I usually give them kind of a preview of what I'm talking about, and I just said, hey, if you're a big Jonathan Edwards fan, you might want to get ready, because I'm going to not be super kind. Um, And uh, my buddy Eric said, you know what? I think that when Jonathan got to heaven and he met God, that God like wrapped him up in his arms and said, buddy, I, I love you. I don't hate you. I've always loved you. And yeah, you made some mistakes, some big ones. You were lost for a time, but you were never not my son. I have always loved you. And I think about how beautiful that good news is, right? That God in his ultimate love for us, his transcendent forgiveness, his incredible work on the cross was propelled and compelled by his love for us to defeat the thing that kept hurting us to come after the sin that so easily entangles us, as Hebrews says, to set us free from the thing that we could not set ourselves free from. 
I think that is really good news for Jonathan and for all of us. But we're still left with a question, right? If Jesus defeated evil and and fixed the brokenness caused by sin and death, why do we still deal with those things today? Well, that's because God's mission of restoration, it's, it's not complete yet. Remember, God's great story in Scripture is based around three trees, not just two. And the third tree is the tree of life in the new heaven and new earth. And we're going to talk all about this next Sunday. But as we wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with how the last chapters of the Bible describe God's fully restored world. And if you're comfortable doing so, I'd love for you to consider just closing your eyes as I read these verses over us. They describe the ultimate hope we have through Jesus and a small taste of what we can be a part of seeing happen through God's kingdom today. This is Revelation 21 and 22. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of this river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God himself will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life, come. Amen. Let me pray. God, you are so good. I am, I am overwhelmed by your goodness by your love that not only drove you to put on flesh and come to earth and fight our battles when we couldn't fight them, but the power of your love which defeated sin and death and evil so that we may not be bound by their shackles any longer. God, you are so good. Your love for us knows no bounds. It is relentless, it is reckless, and it is always there. You pursue us with it. 
You are there waiting like the father of the prodigal son. No matter who we are, what we've done, how far away we have strayed, you come for us. Like we just sang, you, you leave the 99. Come for the one. God, at all different times in our lives, we have been that one. I have been that one. And I'm so grateful that your great love came for me. So Lord, we pray that we would each and every day, each and every morning, wake up with the identity we have in Christ, an understanding that we are your children, that we are deeply loved by you, that you loved us even to the point of death on the cross, that you loved us even to the point of a battle with sin and death and evil, that your love for us never stops. And I pray that not only would we receive that love each and every day, but we would give it away. That we would give it away. That we would help people, no matter their background, no matter how many sermons they've heard or how long they've sat in a church setting or anything like that, if they have not received the fullness of your love, that we would give it to them. That we would help them see you for who you really are. A good father who loves us so much. May we make a home in that love and create space for everyone and anyone to experience that love too. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.